Hey, what's up, Noggin Notes listening audience? Thank you again for downloading this show and continuing to augment and enrich your noggin with all the information that we bring to you. I'm humbled that you continue to listen to what we have to share. It's really cool. But uh, beyond that, I think it's just cooler that I get to interview these people. I, I don't know. I think I think I've expanded my knowledge scope and uh, practicability well beyond any formalized continuing education program that could have ever amounted to the hours I've put into these interviews. Just, I don't know, it's just a humble reminder that the world is big um, and the people who inhabit it are very smart and very capable and there's a whole lot of them. And so to, you know, I I think to confine oneself to one's own community is, um, it's a little narrow. Uh, certainly there's nothing wrong with being in your own community and, and living there and keeping your tribe small. I certainly advocate that don't get lost in the, in the, you know, the, the plethora of availability online and social media and all that stuff. But, um, but I think we need to step out of our box a little bit. So today's interview is with Christina de Los Angeles. She lives in California, not in the city of Los Angeles, but in Northern California. And, um, it was wonderful. We spanned a, a bunch of topics. We talked about assisted suicide. We talked about um, problems within the profession, uh, how we can overcome those things. I, I just, I don't know. I'm always humbled by the opportunity to talk to people that I don't normally get to interact with. And I invite everybody listening to do the same thing if you get a chance. Certainly, you know, listening to podcasts is a great way to do it. Um, but if you can actually have real conversations with real actual people, um, you know, who are otherwise complete strangers or that you would have never crossed paths with. Uh, I think it's just enriching. So thanks again for downloading. Uh, we appreciate your continued support. Uh, you know, as always, if you find this interesting, share it around with people. I don't get paid for this. Safiso doesn't get paid. Um, we don't have any sponsorship you know, whatever sponsorship we used to have, uh, was like, I think we made maybe 60 bucks on it. Uh, but we've been doing this for like five and a half years now and it's exciting. And I, I hope that this serves as an inspiration for you listening to go out and do your own thing too. So you can expand your scope, uh, learn new stuff, meet new people and share it with others. So without further delay, here's my interview with Christina de Los Angeles. Welcome back listening audience to the Noggin Notes podcast. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. Thanks as always for tuning in and downloading and listening wherever you listen and streaming and all the options. I don't even think anybody tunes anymore, do they? They don't tune. Tune in. Yeah, you definitely don't <laughs> tune a podcast. The voice you hear that's not mine is uh, Christina de los Angeles, which is <laughs> you know, the uh, the proper way to say it probably is Christina de los Angeles. And you're, you're not actually from the angels. Or of the angels? No. Oh. Well, maybe I am maybe of the angels. Yeah. <laughs> but but who are you? Tell tell the listening audience who you are and uh, what you're about. Yeah, I'm Christina, and don't feel bad. I actually pronounce my name De Los Angeles as well. Yeah. <laughs> Super I Americanized. I, Spanish. I know. Um, but yeah, I am an associate marriage and family therapist. Um, currently in California, um, mom, a wife, I have two littles, and. I am also um, just very passionate about just um, helping couples and families like have amazing relationships. So that's my passion. And that concludes our podcast. Thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I I love hearing that because it's so rare to hear people talk about passion for couples, families, children, right? It's like, I have a passion for mental health. It's like, 
yeah, who doesn't <laughs> um, <laughs> differentiate yourself? And and you did just that. So uh, we'll get into some of that stuff in a little bit, like why systemic context matters and, you know, uh, how do we improve our marriages and relationships? But you and I connected um, three plus years ago, probably now, sometime in 2019, before the world ended. And um, you had a podcast. Do you still have it? I do. I do. And I actually just started um, kind of getting back into it. So it's now the Building Together podcast. Um, It was therapy things. So I've kind of like focused more on um, the home, the marriage relationships. That's cool. I want I want to hear all about that. Um, but but when you had me on to therapy things, I don't even know how you discovered me. How did you? Do you remember how you found me or connected? That is something I was actually thinking about not too long ago. Uh, when you asked me to come back on here, and I was like, "How? I know I know I had reached out to you, and I believe it was through noggin notes. I think." Um, are you familiar with, um, oh my gosh, I'm going blank on his app, um, Nestor Vela's? Yeah, you know what? Yeah. So I think we're I think supposed it's through to, him. I think I was supposed to have him on and we never did or something. I don't know. I, was he, very I think introduced me to the app. And then from Back there, had an app. Yeah. I was like, I got to, yeah. And so I was very very um interested a young associate too and i was i was very yeah just yeah now it's all coming back that's right mm-hmm. that's right it's all coming back now so yeah back in 2019 if you, if you if you haven't listened for a really long time noggin notes used to be an app and a podcast and the podcast was embedded into the app and the app was basically log your emotions log the time of day you felt something and why you think you felt it and it created this nice timeline of experiences almost like a digital journal and um it was super cool. Turns out apps are very expensive to to maintain and to host, and we don't we're not made of money, and so we ended up letting the app go. But we kept the podcast, and now this will be interesting for you uh, and some people who may be listening. the 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 brand Noggin Notes now. Not only do we have three podcasts, there's Noggin Notes Africa, Noggin Notes Cambodia, and then mine, which is the the OG uh, Noggin Notes. But Noggin Notes is a consultation company for all intent and purpose. And Safiso, the founder, has uh, partnered with a bunch of different people. And he's now training companies and education places and you know, schools and whatnot on mental wellness down in Cambodia, where he's still living. And he's, he's working with some people in South Africa to bring it there because those areas of the world are just completely devoid of any mental health knowledge whatsoever. And, and the reason this is a big deal is because the youth in those areas are connected through the interwebs to the West and the West is all about mental health. Right. And they're like, what is this mental health stuff? And they're asking the adults and the adults don't know. And so you go to a country like Cambodia where they suffered a genocide in my generation basically. And, um, they've got all this trauma and these effects and they don't know what's going on. And the, the, the kids are connected and they're like, Hey, something's, something's weird here. Right. But they don't know how to articulate it. So they like shoulder tap the one guy with the podcast and they're like, Hey, you, you do this. He's like, what? No, I don't. <laughs> but then he realized I should like, and that was really cool. And, um, so it, it's just been really special to see this evolve. And now he's literally bringing some thing that they've never experienced to that part of the world. And so that's what Noggin Notes is. So we've grown and it's really ex- exciting to be a part of, even though I'm distant of, you know, here in the States, but you have grown and we'll get into that. But one thing I did want to share with the audience and this, we chat a little bit before talking 
you know, live or whatever in the recording. You asked me a question during that interview that stopped me like nothing has stopped me in recent years. And I was in the middle of rambling about how I was doing all these things and wearing all these hats and chairing the licensing board and rewriting laws and raising a family and opening a business and all this stuff. And you're like, so how do you find time for yourself? <laughs> like, how do you find you time? And I was like, um, <laughs> um, and, and it hit me just as quickly as, as you asked it. I just never considered before. I don't consider those things work. Um, they're all, they're all just like a life's mission and passion. So, you know, there's that old adage that says, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I truly believe that the podcasts and the YouTube videos and the, uh, the, the guns and mental health stuff and the, all the nonprofit endeavors and, and then of course the business itself. And it's just, it doesn't feel like work. I would be doing it anyway because I'm trying to make earth better. And so I want you to know that when you ask simple questions like that, sometimes it can have a profound impact on somebody's life. Because what I've done with that is I've taken it and I've helped teach other people to embrace their calling in such a way that they're not doing this like line drawing around all their daily ch mm -hmm. tasks such that mm -hmm. they become chores and obligations, right? All of this is a choice. And if you choose to engage in a whole bunch of activities that all sort of look like work because they're all under the mental health umbrella, it's not work. It actually feels quite liberating to do what I love and what I'm called to do. And so you asking that not only brought insight to me, but I've actually been able to share that with other people and help them find psychological freedom in continuing to do their work without many making drastic alterations and just embracing what they love and be like, Oh yeah, cool. All right. So it's not actually busy time. It's something I enjoy. So thank you for that. I love that. I think that's that. Yes. That brings up like just such a good point of like, like you said, it's not busy work. Um, because yeah, I think there is such like a focus on like the self-care, self-care outside of your work. If it's like, you love what you do, then it is <laughs> self -care. It brings you energy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's not draining at all. I actually draw energy from all this stuff. And, uh, cause I, yeah. I, I believe that I'm, I'm making an impact on society, whether it's coaching my kids T-ball team or, um, mm -hmm. you know, hosting a podcast or whatever. If I'm, if I'm dispensing information into the public and they then help heal themselves and they stop coming through my front door then we all win. Um, and I'm not mm. attached to this, you know, job. Uh, it's, it's a cool calling. It's a great career, but if suddenly tomorrow everybody woke up healthy and I wasn't needed anymore, I would happily do anything else to pay the bills, uh, because I would be surrounded by healthy people. So I, I hope, hope other therapists share that same sentiment that we'd like to work ourselves out of a job. But, um, yeah. So anyway, thank you. That was a, it was a neat thing that you probably weren't aware of at the time when you asked it. Uh, was it, not. <laughs> it, it hit me like a ton of bricks and in a good way. So, so let's get back to you. Um, all right, let's talk about, let's start with couples. Cause we reconnected on an email that I forwarded to a bunch of people about, um, a pretty hot topic. And I'm not going to touch that yet because I want to introduce it later. So people's brains aren't fixated on the thing that's yet to come, but talk a little bit about your work with couples and families, and specifically how it differs from what I think most people's impressions of counseling are. Like, what what are you learning, and what have you discovered over the last several years of your associateship, specific to this important work? And I mean, you changed your podcast to focus on it, right? So this is obviously a, a draw for you. So talk a little bit about that and why it's so important. Yeah. Well, I think um, I always kind of knew early, really early on, 
um, that I was very interested in just like the couple dynamic. But I think like over the past three years, I've just learned a lot more, become a lot more passionate, even though my daily work right now, I mean, the majority of it is working with youth. And um, I work with foster youth right now in our county. And that work has been definitely, um, it's had its challenges, but I've, I've gotten so much out of it. It's been such like a gift. And that's, um, let me jump in real quick. That's, that's a yeah. government job. You're working for yeah. .gov in the county system. And these youth mm-hmm. are usually wards of the state, right? Something like that. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So They're these... what's known as 300 dependents. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so these so. aren't people who are finding their way into your private practice clinic. They're, they're coming to you mm-hmm. as an employee of the government to help them uh, work through their, their situations and whatnot. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Just want and to so I'm that. working um, mainly with the, with the children and then also like their caregivers, whether that be like foster parents right. or bio parents um, sometimes. But what it has really taught me um, over like the last few years is just the importance of strong relationships and the family unit, unit. because what I'm seeing is a disruption, like the effects of a disruption and a dysfunction of that. And of course, like we all have quote unquote, like dysfunction in our families, but um, it just like to be able to work with these kids um, has just brought like so much more, I guess, confirmation for the work that I want to do of and this is the thing that I have found like really interesting is a lot of times like the focus is, a, is on the kid and their treatment and, um, you know, fixing these behaviors and um, getting all of the services thrown at this one child um, to support them. And I'm here for it. But at the same time, it breaks my heart to like also see that all the focus is on them. Um, and they feel that sometimes as if like, that's, you know, they are the problem, the problem. Um, mm-hmm. um, when, you know, what could we have done to just, you know, better support a family or to bring education to, um, you know, a couple or, you know, in that way, like have um, prevented this. Um, so, and then just with a lot of things going on in our society, I just see like the need for <laughs> strong families. And yeah. that family unit. So yeah, that in a nutshell is what I've learned. It's um, you're highlighting something very important that I really want to drive home the point about, which is we don't do fix my kid. Um, and, and at Zephyr, we actually have a disclaimer in the consent forms. It says, it doesn't read like that, but it says you parents as the executives of your home are in charge of the way that things go. And as you go, so go your children. So we're not, this isn't, jujitsu where you drop them off for an hour and come back, you will be actively participating because treating the kid is treating the symptom, not the problem. The problem is dysfunction in the system of the family. So that's an abstract concept for most uh, casual lay people who listen to this kind of thing. So help give them an understanding of what the system means when we talk on those terms. Mm-hmm. So the system, like the, the family unit, so that, you know, that's the kid and their relationship to their main care, you know, caregivers, whether that's mom and dad or um, mom and grandma and just really the dynamics between them. So we have, you know, in a lot of homes, there's going to be like, you know, the, the parents, their relationship and then the relationship to the children 
and then the children's relationship to each other. Um, and then from there, which we do actually do a lot of these um, visual diagrams for children too, to kind of get an idea of what their system looks like or what it has looked like. And kids are very, I love doing this with kids, it's called um, family mapping. And so what we do is we put the kiddo um, kind of in the middle, but then we ask them like, you know, who are the people that you trust the most? You know, um, uh, who are the people that um, you are closest to in your life? So kind of getting an idea of like what that system looks like. Um, we usually like we'll draw a line to mom and dad and then to mom and dad to each other. And it's interesting, like where kids will put that on paper and right. it tells you so much. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's really the dynamic and the relationships between the people um, that are considered family to them in their life. So when we talk about um, dysfunction, because you mentioned that earlier, there's, there's, we always have le levels of dysfunction. There's no such thing as normal, right? There's only normal mm -hmm. for you. Um, and then we can comparatively say, well, I want to be better, right? And then we ask better in what way? So we can kind of quantify it and, and structure the, the intervention. But if we're talking about a dysfunctional family system, what are we talking about? That's a good question. So I can tell you a lot of what I've been seeing when it comes to like, a dysfunctional sure. family unit. It can be where um, basically where maybe a parent's role, um, there's there can be dysfunction in that and where they aren't taking um, responsibility for their role and it's being put on a child. So it's it could be um, also dysfunction in the communication. Um, I see a lot of trauma, so disruption in caregiving where a parent is absent or um, a parent is, um, you know, there's maybe a lot of abuse emotionally, physically, that sort of thing. So it's, I see a lot of just of the disruption within like a healthy communication relationship. Um, we also see like, trying to think even over the, the past couple of years, you know, through the pandemic, um, I feel like it kind of had highlighted some of the dysfunction that was there mm -hmm. um, because of the amount of stress put on families. Um, so we did see like a lot of that of where maybe the roles um, or the dysfunction between like a parent and a child was kind of um, just intensified during that time because they were together so much more. Right. Yeah. Um, they didn't have the usual uh, coping mechanisms to bail out or avoid or pretend right. it didn't exist or whatever. There was no time apart to let it mm -hmm. settle. Um, and, and certainly like when you put things in a, in a pressure cooker, uh, it changes. Right. And so that's, yeah. that's essentially what lockdowns and distance learning did. Uh, and, and of course the, the constant fear pumping that we saw through media and social media, you know, it just elevates everything that may have been on a low simmer to a boil over. And so those, mm -hmm. those issues now present and you're like, all right, so how do we deal with this? And, you know, I talked earlier about symptoms versus problems. How do you bring that to somebody's attention that's been in a, a dysfunctional family system for you know, a couple generations, maybe? How do you help bring it to their attention so that they can start to work on it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Now, do you mean bring it to their attention as like the adults? Like clinically, like what does the conversation mm -hmm. look like in the setting so that you're not 
rude and off-putting and being like, yeah. you parents are the problem, you know, because <laughs> like, that usually doesn't create yeah. a lot of like compliance and treatment. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, a lot of times how I bring it up is, you know, we'll, we'll have a parent coming in and, and they're able to list off, like you said, like all the symptoms, everything that they're seeing that is a problem um, for, you know, that they're seeing as a problem in their child. And like you said earlier, I love how you have like that written in your um, like intake paperwork or whatever that is. Yes. Uh huh. Because I think that for a lot of parents, they do feel disempowered. Like they're bringing your child, their child to you to like fix them. And I think um, for a lot of parents, like they feel powerless. Maybe they weren't taught how to parent um, differently than what they're doing. Um, I think a lot of Mm -hmm. times there's a lot of shame. So I think bringing this up in um, in just an empathetic way is like important. Um, So I always try because I can't, I'm human too. So um, I do sometimes like get a little bit triggered sometimes when, you know, I'm seeing a parent who is maybe putting a lot of, you know, um, just pressure and blame on a child but then I have to think like I wonder what this is like for them and so I always go there first of like what what is happening for them what do they want to see different not just in their child but the relationship they have with their child right yeah and so yeah yeah, and so I, I found it useful and effective to to use phrases like this is not your fault because you didn't know you're just acting out of what you learned over the years, you know, and you're just parroting what you taught. Like we all do, right. We grew up in environments mm-hmm. and then we just mimic or emulate what we see. And that mm-hmm. becomes our reality and our worldview until somebody else comes along like a therapist and says, actually, there's another way to do this. In fact, there's a bunch of different mm-hmm. ways. Which one do you want to pick? And you're like, what do you mean pick? <laughs> like I get to choose. Um, <laughs> so what, what I found useful is using phrases like it's not your fault, but it's definitely your responsibility. Right. So mm-hmm. we, we can blame all we want, but blame doesn't usually help because like, what does it do? Oh, my parents sucked when they screwed me up. And it's like, cool, they're not in the room and we can't unring the bell. So what do you want to do moving forward? So I, I found that, you know, shifting focus to present day and um, inviting responsibility rather than accusing them of being irresponsible is a lot more um, palatable and digestible. So mm-hmm. give me some like techniques or some phrases to use that people can take away and be like, okay, cool. I can have a little more grace for myself or, Oh, I can implement this strategy or invite them to examine things without threat of, you know, invoking that shame again. Cause a lot of people who live in shame, you know, continue to act out of that shame and then they don't get anywhere. So give us some tips and mm-hmm. insights. What's a session the first one that came to, to mind like one that I use a lot is just like, I wonder, and I think it's like inviting and it's not like, you know, I'm seeing this and, uh, you know, I think you should do this. Like I stay away from that. And I think shooting yourself is like a big one. Mm -hmm. I think you should, um, like, great. Okay. You thought I should do this and I didn't. So I disappointed you, (laughs) you know? Um, Right. right. So I always use, like, I wonder if, you know, you were to do this. And I think like if we use that dialogue with ourselves more often, like I wonder, it's more of a mindset of a curiosity, um, be kind of exploring different options. So it's just more open um, versus I should or, um, 
you know, that internal dialogue of here I go again, or I can't even, it's like, whoa, whoa, um, with parents, I always try and use, which I often use with like, you know, children is like a star method, which is stop, think, assess, respond. Um, And I think like if parents were to do that more, even with their like own internal, internal like dialogue, um, it can be helpful. And just stopping and saying like, I wonder, you know, if I could do this, you know, I wonder if I did this differently, what could happen? Just exploring the idea first. And I think we have to become familiar more with like, if I did this differently and, you know, I can have a more positive outcome. Can you, can you first imagine that? Can you first play with that idea? Because I think we get really good at exploring the op- the other way and having like a really good visualization of like where it could go wrong and mm-hmm. what we've done before and where this is going to lead to the place that it's always gone conflict with my kid and they're going to do this type of thing versus what would it look like if it went really well for you? Can you, can you see yourself in that position, not just your child, but can you as a parent see yourself connecting and what would that feel like? So um, I think playing with that um, idea and just a practice of visualizing it first or even imagining it first um, can be helpful before even taking the step and doing it. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I, I could stand to use more of that too because I think I tend to do a little more, well, I know I do. I tend to do a lot more teaching than I do experiential. When I slow somebody down, I say, envision this, right? And and then what you're highlighting there is something that uh, it's, it's a little bit of a therapeutic parlor trick, I guess, where we, where we help people to um, imagine scenarios where peace and tranquility unfold, which is an exercise in practicing vulnerability, but also intimacy mentally without actually having to execute it because execution comes with risk because you could screw it up. It could not pan out the way you want, but at least with the envisioning part, the, the, the imagination of what does a healthy relationship look like? What does peace with my brother look like? What is, um, being sober look like? And sometimes they can't imagine it because they've never seen it. Right. So it's really tough Mm -hmm. to imagine things you've never uh, been shown. And that's where we come in and say, well, you know, what sucks right now, right? And so you can kind of go back and forth between like, okay, you can't imagine the positive. Well, tell me what what you really hate right now. Like, well, I hate blowing all my money on booze or whatever. It's like, okay, so what would it look like if you had all that money? And then you can even like jump to the whiteboard, which I'm a big fan of, and like map out the math of like, all right, what's a bottle of vodka cost and how many of those are you consuming a week? And then like do a quick little multiplication be like, here, you have X amount of dollars more. What do you do with it? And they're like, whoa, (laughs) right? And And then it spirals into... Where else could I make change? Now, the problem is people of the, the the demographic you're dealing with usually have chronic generational trauma and impoverishment. And with those two come lack, not only lack of resources, but also a, a, a self-talk learned helplessness because they tend to not see possibility. So what ends up happening is you create this homeostasis, meaning this, this state of being that's very familiar and comfortable, not comfortable and like, I like it, but like predictable way that when you start to invite paths toward peace and tranquility, it pulls them out of the chaos with which they've become so comfortable 
and it scares them because the fear of the unknown is actually more powerful than the misery of the present, which mm-hmm. keeps people where they are. So help help me understand or help the listening audience understand how you work with that demographic that you know has practiced generational in some cases, but certainly for many, many years, a homeostatic chaos. How do you help them envision what has never been seen before and then help motivate them toward that as opposed to falling back into the easy pattern of continuing to do what they've always done. Mm-hmm. Always remind them to like have grace for themselves too. Good point. Um, I think the reminder of this is going to take baby steps and consistency. Cause I, I also hear this a lot um, when maybe I'll share like an intervention. It's like, Oh, tried it. Didn't work. <laughs> if you tried it and it did, I tried that consistency stuff and it didn't work. <laughs> like if you tried it and quit, it wasn't consistent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I tried this and it, it just, it just, it just doesn't work for us. And I'm like, whoa. whoa. So um, I always remind them like it's, you might not see like the results. You, you won't see the results after trying this new interaction once. And I do explain. I provide like a lot of psychoeducation too, as to like why. So going into like what you said about our brains wanting to um, basically move towards what's familiar because it takes less energy to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, it's those neural pathways and it's familiar. It's easier. It's something that has um, we've experienced over and over. Um, And so knowing that I think sharing with them just, that they will feel that resistance and normalizing that and then saying, okay, but you're going to feel it and it might be difficult. It might feel scary. Um, But on the other side of that, imperfect practice consistently, you'll start to experience something new. And I think one of the reasons why I really love family therapy and I don't have so many people on my case that like necessarily want to do family therapy because it's more of like here, take, take, you know, the child, um, but what I, (laughs) what I do love about it is that if you, if I can have like, whether it's via zoom or, or in person, the family in a session, I think it provides a space to experience something new between them. And that's where they can become more familiar with more positive interactions, messy sometimes, um, it can get chaotic in there as well, but there's, there's this, there's this container where I'm then, you know, um, guiding them in repairing and having healthier communication and slowing down the interactions so that they build confidence in shifting what they do or have done to something new. And that's with couples or families. I think that's, that's the, the main thing is providing that space where they can practice um, new interactions, new, new ways of doing things until they're comfortable enough and they're doing it outside. And then, like you said, we work ourselves out of a job. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times, you know, if, if they're home and they're in, in their normal environment and they're doing the things they typically have done, it's going to be hard. So uh, that's why I'm all, always for like the family getting in there. But yeah, no, you <laughs> so they, you're so right. Like I mean, the the audio audience, if you're not watching on YouTube, you, you can't see me aggressively nodding along to everything that Christine was saying. Um, but 
what you're doing is like you said, you provided the space to literally shepherd them through. You're you're showing them how to practice. So it's not so scary. Um, the problem is, of course, you can't follow them home and be like, ah, ah, right there. Nope. Do the other thing. All right. So, um, but at least they get the experience in a safe environment to, to practice it. Right. And, um, and that's really cool because they may have never been shown how, or even taught that it's possible, uh, when, when you're, you know, in that office and you're like, Hey, did you're like, one of my favorites is asking people, uh, what's your parenting philosophy? And I always get the trout faced look like her. Huh? <laughs> like, 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 a, like I'm looking at a fish and they're like, what are you talking about? Parenting philosophy. It's like, and like a hundred percent of the time people say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So then it's an opportunity to introduce something like Christian Conti's the four C's. Um, and they're like, Oh, I'd never even thought of such a concept as a parenting philosophy. And it's like, well, now you have, and once you become aware, <laughs> you can no longer become unaware. So what do we want to do with this now? And and it compels them to take steps toward that unfamiliar, scary terrain in a safe, welcoming, warm environment so that, the, that their brains learn that it's possible to entertain new ideas and go this direction and the world's not going to spin off its axis. So... Then you say, all right, cool. So see what we did here? We touched emotion. We we experienced intimacy. We were a little vulnerable. Now, do you guys think you can do this at home? And they're going to go, yeah, I guess we could. All right, cool. There's your homework. Every day for the next six days until we see each other again, you're going to practice this. And they're like, oh, oh, I have to do it myself. Yes, you do. Because <laughs> I can't be with you. Um, and that's really cool. I, lo I love that you highlighted the, the experiential part of actually walking them through the process. That's really neat. You're just not. And I think the, the other thing to like add to that too is just um, reminding them that like it's good to, so like when we were talking about like the visualization and everything, like it's good to imagine it, but to do it is the only way you're going to build confidence. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, you know, the, the doing in session and the doing out of session and the doing it messily and then repairing and then coming back into session with like a new problem maybe um that's that's it it's fun to work with that when they come back and they're like well we tried it and we laughed and, and giggled and it didn't really work it's like oh that's cool though you tried right i think a lot right. of us uh, therapists are guilty of this too where we're so programmed by this instant gratification society that just seems to be accelerating by the way um that we um i don't know if i blame the microwave oven or the television but something started this like trend of or maybe it was i don't know maybe it was automated manufacturing back in the turn of the last century but we, now it's accelerated to where we've lost distress tolerance we lost patience for anything and so we've forgotten the concept that anything worth having is worth working toward slash waiting for slash exchanging effort you know um and so when we tell people that it's going to take baby steps and you're not going to see instant results, they, the, the temptation to get really frustrated is very, very palpable. And for us too, I say therapists are guilty of this because it's like, well, we assign some homework and we say, go practice this over the next six days and come back. And then they don't. And it's like, we're disappointed, but what we should have expected is exactly that because that's not what they're used to. They have to have another reminder and then maybe another reminder. And then maybe after four or five weeks of being reminded, they finally watch Jake's emotional functioning videos available on the Zephyr Wellness channel, by the way. Um, and they're like, oh, okay. So we could have done this six weeks ago when I asked you to, 
um, but we're doing it now. And so we have to have grace and patience with ourselves, with our with our own patient population to say, look, I'm asking them to, to do something that they've literally never done before, haven't practiced, and I have to understand that they're not going to get it right. They might not even do it at all. Um, so being able to be aware of the dynamics of instant gratification and distress tolerance and all that stuff is critical for walking somebody through progress because uh, progress is, is hard. I mean, they didn't arrive at wherever they are overnight, so it's not going to get undone overnight. Um, so if you're a therapist listening, have patience with yourself and patience with your patients. That's all I got to say about that. Second that. And your video, actually, anyone listening, you definitely got to check out that video. I watched it Which and one? I shared it with, I have a friend that's, um, he's very interested in like emotional intelligence. And when I watched your video, I sent it to him and he watched it right away. And he was like, this is gold. Which, which so. one was it? It was the most recent one. It's function. Um, yeah, emotional functioning. Yeah, okay. So me in front of a yeah. whiteboard, probably yeah. with a Nevada sweater. Nevada sweater. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole series. So uh, there's if you don't if you don't know and you're new to this, um, Noggin Notes has them in audio form. Uh, but if you want to watch the video form of me diagramming things on a whiteboard and uh, funny little faces and whatnot, uh, go to ZephyrWellness.org and click on the media articles tab and videos and just type in emotional functioning and the whole set of nine will pop up and they're I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes a piece. And, um, I think it's critical because it forms the foundation through which I operate. Cause if you know your neurological functioning and become aware of what your brain is trying to tell you, then you can be in charge of your responses to environment. And that's critical. Cause I think a lot of us walk around just kind of reflexively doing things and we're not really in charge of ourselves. So if you want to shake off your impulses and get more in charge of your decisions, know why you feel what you feel and, and know that emotions are just neutral. They're neither positive nor negative. They're just informative. So um, I don't need to harp on that. There's plenty of information out there uh, about that. But let's shift to couples real quick. I want to talk about couples counseling and how it differs from individual uh, counseling. Um I start wherever you want. I, I love couple stuff. I think it's fascinating. Um, there's lots of really good literature out there. There's lots of, lots of really poor literature too. But um, but talk about some of the really effective ways to bring couples together when they've drifted for regardless of the reason. Mm. Well, to answer like your first question, the difference between I guess uh, just the individual work and the couples, you know, work is you're bringing two, <laughs> two worlds together. And, um, you know, I think oftentimes it's helpful for couples to have their like own individual therapist, um, especially if there's been trauma. Um, but it's bringing like two different, two different whole people together. Um, and like you said, a lot of times they're coming in, not because everything's great, but because they've drifted apart. And kind of similar to the family work is a lot of it, I think is experiential and is really slowing down the interaction because they are coming because their interactions with each other are not good, are, are, are mostly negative maybe, um, or they're not having interactions at all. Right, <laughs> like they're right. not having enough. Yeah. The connection is, is kind of gone. And so I think it's always, oops, sorry, you know, I hit my, um, headphones, but I think it's always, I mean, <laughs> I always highlight the fact that they're coming in because mm -hmm. they've made like, I mean, hopefully they've agreed upon coming <laughs> in together. <laughs> One's not dragging the other by the ear. Yeah. There's not like some like deal going on, but either way, I guess 
like they're making a decision to take money and time, you know, and focus on the relationship. So to me, I don't always assume. And I ask like, what does this mean for you? And why is it important? You know, um, why is it important to them that they're, that they're here and that they're doing this? Um, and a lot of times, like, it's because they're, they're wanting that connection. They just don't know how to get there. And they sometimes not sure how they drifted apart. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's high conflict. And I think that's where for me as a therapist, like that um, is where a lot of the slowing down of the interactions is helpful. Um, because I mean, our reactions are quick. And when mm-hmm. we know our partner and we've been with our partners, you know, we know they're, what they're going to say after we say it, like it can be such a quick interaction. Um, So really slowing that down and not just slowing the interaction down, but asking questions in between of like, what happened there? What do you mean? Um, Because I think sometimes people are communicating um, often maybe a lot, but they're not communicating the thing that they actually want to. Yes. And two people missing each other. Yes. Yeah. Um, Do you mind if I challenge you on something? that you said? Sure. Okay. So, uh, frame this up a little bit. We spent about 16 months, uh, discussing this weekly for sure, if not many times a week in supervision and hallway staffings and whatnot. And we finally concluded, this was about three years ago, that there is virtually no circumstance except for active domestic violence where we would separate the couple into individual therapy. And the reason for that is, and we're presuming they're together and committed, right? So um, whether it's formal through marriage or, uh, you know, some sort of state document, or they've just said, yes, we're in this together. We don't need the paper, but we're living together and we're, we're committed, right? So we take them at their, at their word. And if they're, if they're committed to the, the, the relationship, they're committed to the therapeutic process. Then we say there's, nothing that can't be dealt with between you two. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it's childhood trauma or whatever it is. Um, At bare minimum, the quote unquote person with issues, you know, the identified patient or whatever, it's like, no, it's not my problem. It's her drinking, right? Okay. Then the husband in this hypothetical situation, we would want him in session anyway, because he's her biggest support. And he at bare minimum wants to hear what we're sharing with her and exchanging so he can be the support because they, you know, the, the individuals with us one hour out of the 168 in the week, the other 167 hours, they're somewhere else, presumably at home with the most important person in their, in their life. So we want to build that center of, of reliance and support because we want interdependence between the two. We definitely do not want a dependence upon us. So, okay, there's that. And then at maximum, what we want to do is we want to foster a, an intimacy between the couple that allows for exploration of any topic irrespective of what it is or how emotionally charged it may be. So then you can get into things like, okay, uh, tell me why this abuse from your childhood is so impactful in our communication here. And when I wear that certain cologne, it reminds me of the time that something or other happened, right? The reason we don't send people to their proverbial corners to work on their proverbial individual issues is because we have a vast amount of literature that suggests that's actually a really quick path to separation. So if we were operating on the presumption that they're staying together, 
the last thing we would want to do is invite anything that would risk separation or furtherance because they would develop individually instead of together. And if I'm treating a couple, I'm treating the couple, not the two individuals in the couple. So it's a very different philosophical shift that I think um, a lot of people who don't work in our profession don't understand because, well, they didn't go to school for it, but also because pop culture doesn't talk like that. Pop psych and pop culture says, yeah, yeah, go fix yourself, then come back to the the marriage. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, like you fix it with your partner. That's what you committed for. That's presumably why you exchange vows, right? Like I'm not going to go flee to my corner and hide and work, work quote unquote on my own stuff. Cause it's like, well, that's a never ending journey to personal mm-hmm. exploration. Like you'll never, when, when's the off point, right? When, where's the off ramp? So no, we, we just don't do that. And we say, turn toward each other. And I'll tell you what drove it home. Uh, we were doing the hypotheticals and I was on the, on the fence of like, do we, or don't we commit ourselves to this policy? And I was advocating for, no, no, there's times when, and one of our grad students at the time said, and I'll never forget this, she goes, well, if you're saying that this person can't be around for the exploration of the individual's trauma history, you're not only depriving them of the opportunity to experience what they've gone through and share that together but you're essentially saying you're not capable of handling it Mm. and i was like oh yeah you're right we're done here yep that was it um no more individual sessions uh certainly not simultaneous with a couple session because then you got three counselors talking past each other and uh, that doesn't work but yeah it's it was really fascinating to go through that process and boy it was painstaking and arduous and full of you know literature and research and opinions and dissenting opinions and Finally, a grad student spoke what we needed to hear, and we're like, okay, well, from here on out, Zephyr has a <laughs> – if you're here for couples, you're here for couples. We don't do individual. Um, and that has been overwhelmingly well-received. I mean, absolutely mm. overwhelmingly real, well-received. And so we'll – oftentimes, I mean, I'll even say, hey, look, if to, to the interns, the students, the staff will say, if you're working with somebody and the recurring theme is the other person, you better get them in there because um, we can't fix somebody who's not there. And – that's just the right thing to do. It's more and more efficient. It's more expedient. It's more just and honorable, and uh, it's just it's just more ethical and more effective. So uh, that's why I wanted to challenge you on that because you're like, yeah, oh, there's times when, and I was like, I don't know. <laughs> we kind of had a lot of those discussions, and I think I should probably share that with you. Um, so no, I, I love that, and I love the challenge because something that you said, and it actually like it resonates even more. Um, it's just empowering the couple. Um, mm-hmm. So exactly what your grad student had like shared. I think that that makes so much sense. Maybe I shouldn't be so upset when so many like couples aren't doing individual therapy. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, I think we're reinforcing, like, you know, like you said, there's a reinforcing of maybe an idea of I'm not capable or we, right. we aren't capable. And I would agree with you. I think um, the whole go fix yourself before you get into a relationship or how can you be in a relationship until you are like this fully healed person is just, it's ridiculous. We, um, because I do believe like we are meant to like heal within relationship, um, within community, not, uh, you know, just fix myself and then I'll be able to, be in relationship until then I'm gonna you know I guess isolate and just (laughs) keep to myself 
Yeah, and I think it sends a message of independence, which, you know, that's all well and good if you're in Hollywood shooting a movie. But <laughs> in practice, we don't want independence. We want interdependence. And the mm-hmm. only way to get interdependence is to actually be vulnerable and rely on somebody else to help you. And what better person to do that with than the person you've ostensibly dedicated yourself to? So, yeah. you know, it's not like we're asking you to open up, you know, to your barber which you probably share more with your barber than you do your spouse. If I know average (laughs) Americans, um, but imagine how much more enriched that relationship will be if you throw yourself out there and don't get whacked. Right. And I think that's the problem is a lot of people bring in baggage from the past, either prior romantic relationships or bullying on the playground or their own family upbringing where it's like, uh, I'm not going to do that vulnerability stuff because, uh, it comes with risk and risk of what pain, I don't want any more pain, so I'm just not going to open up, and we'll just be two, you know, individual orbs circulating, bumping into each other once in a while, instead of the collective, you know, well-integrated we, uh, and mm-hmm. and and that's that sucks. Like that doesn't it certainly doesn't send a good message to the kids if you're two independents just happen happen to be cohabitating. Uh, you want to you want a unified front, and and then we ripple into family stuff where it's like, as go the parents, so go the kids. Well, which parent? Like, well, they should be the same, really. Like, yes, they have different personalities. Mm-hmm. They've got different tastes and interests and likes and so forth. And just because my wife likes bowling and I like hockey doesn't mean that I, you know, have to abandon hockey. But when it comes to things like finances, which is another hot button issue, it's like, do you share a bank account? Because you should. <laughs> All your finances should go into one place. So there's no fighting, right? And I can almost feel the heads popping as people listen to this, like, oh, I got my private bank account. <laughs> that's not intimate. <laughs> if you want intimacy, that's not it. Um, you know, and parenting decisions and where we spend our money and on what house do we live in and vacations and like big, big life altering decisions, uh, careers and career changes and vehicles to buy. So if you're not, if you're not sharing that intimacy, uh, you're not modeling it well for the children, and the children are going to grow up thinking that they need to be isolated too. And we already have a problem with that, p- with people diving into their phones to avoid intimacy. So, like, do we really want to exacerbate that even more than it already is? I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So yeah, do we solve the world's problems? We we didn't cover that one topic. Do we want to want to cover we didn't. that? Yeah. All right, totally. let's get into it. So, let me pull it up on my. Uh, email here because I think it's worth uh, actually giving the overview. Oh, where are you? Okay. So the title of the article that I sent, and it was from a Substack, um, Barry Weiss's Substack called Common Sense. And the author is Rupa Subramanya, and the title is Scheduled to Die, colon, the rise of Canada's assisted suicide program. Subhead, what do you do when you discover your son has made an appointment for his death? And the brief nutshell version of this is lady discovers that her adult son has uh, scheduled this appointment to be executed by a doctor who is selling executions because it's legal now in Canada to do that under a very, very, very liberal uh, set of criteria, including uh, don't feel like my life is going well. <laughs> and um, and so apparently these physicians can be complicit in uh, assisted suicide. So I forwarded this article about, uh, I don't know, a couple dozen people, and Christina was one of them. And I wanted uh, 
I wanted feedback and, um, I wanted feedback from these people, some of whom were professionals, some of whom are professionals work specifically in suicide prevention. And when I forwarded it, I said, a bunch of people on here are blind copied for privacy's sake, but you know, I'm sure you'd all be friends if we had a party. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in your thoughts. And I said, I think we need to prepare for its inevitable re- arrival in other countries and locales, the U.S. included. And my mind keeps changing on the topic. I'd like to anchor myself in some sort of clear, intentional, ethical framework, but I'm struggling to find one. Hence this email to obtain more feedback and reflection. Y'all know how much, how to reach me if you'd rather chat live than over email. And I got a, a number of responses. I was very appreciative of everybody who replied. So you're actually the first to discuss this with me in this format. Um, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, your your email was pretty timely. I had I had just like scheduled your own suicide. Oh, <laughs> can't do that yet. It was just in time. <laughs> no. Um, Haha, we're joking but, about suicide. Oh, look at the two clowns. Oh, no, just I know, this. I know. But I, I had been thinking about it. And like you, I think initially I, I definitely had a strong response. And whenever I have a really strong response to something, like that's my cue mm-hmm. to really just look into it and like wh- why was it such a strong response? That's, by the way, that's really good for the listening audience. If if you're wondering how to change your, uh, like ability to be defensive or like your proclivity to be super defensive or whatever, or if you want to examine a blind spot, notice your strong responses. You don't even have to label them, but just notice them and then be like, "Mm, that's probably something I should examine. Right. So thank you for pointing that out. Completely agree. Um, it's actually that like practice has forced me to look and read even books that are opposing to like my worldview just so I can like try to um, practice emotional regulation, maybe learn something too. But this was one of them. This was one of them that I had a strong reaction to. And I also had, um, I had some like trouble of like, where am I exactly on this as a therapist? I, I was almost like starting to split myself as like this professional and then as a human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, why, why is that? And it reminded me of, I went to a conference um, and I don't know why this always stuck with me. Um, it was Bessel van der Kolk, I think. Um, oh, yeah. He's great. Score. I'd gone to one of his conferences and I remember him. I remember him saying, um, basically like it's not our position to tell someone or to force someone to live. And I remember even in that setting, I I had like a response, like um, just kind of like a visceral response. And he spoke more about it. And then I started to question, I was like, maybe, maybe we don't. And like what he was saying was making sense of a person's life is their own. And who are we to stand in the way of what they would like to do? We don't know their purpose. We don't know their timeline. You know, that sort of thing. And I always kind of, um, I, I just had remembered it. And it was something that I always pondered, um, even in working in, in the um, population that I do. Um, sorry, I don't know. Something, my camera went away. But, um, you know, there's self-harm behaviors. And um, 
have been told by, you know, supervisors also like, you know, we can't stop someone from doing something like we literally like can't stop them. All we can do is help to prevent it. And I think what brought such a reaction to me with this subject was, I was like, what are we doing? We're no longer saying let's prevent it. We're affirming that maybe death is a solution to something. And I can't get myself to get behind that um, of maybe death is a solution. And I think maybe it's my own, you know, part of my own beliefs too, but I, I just see in our culture also just um, maybe a lack of value for life itself. And, and um, also bringing in, like you said earlier, the kind of microwave, like instant gratification. If I can't fix it now, it's like so short term, like the thinking that um, I think for, you know, a lot of people in really dark spaces, it is hard to think about the future. Like I also try to empathize with people who are at that point of like wanting to end their lives of, you know, thinking that everything around them and what they're experiencing is just too heavy. And maybe they and the people around them would just be better off if they could not like mm-hmm. not live. Um, and I try to empath like empathize with that. And, um, but I still, I guess it's the part of me that still has hope and says that, you know, who are we to say that, that that's a solution and that ending life is a solution. I just can't wrap my mind around it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's something I can't seem to, to get behind. And I don't know, like you said, as a professional, like, should we prepare for this coming here? And what is that going to look like? Um, like I have questions. So what is that going to look like as far as like training mm-hmm. and preparing for that? Yeah. Um, immediately I went to law and ethic. And the reason I did that is probably because I'm a nerd about such things. And I, you know, like knowing what seminal documents do and what I'm beholden to in law and what's in print and so forth. So a couple things that popped out was, uh, okay, well, what about my duty to warn, right? So (laughs) what about my duty to report? And if we're talking age of majority people, adults, that's one thing, right? So we'll stick there for a second. Right now, uh, I believe all 50 states have something that amounts to a Tarasov law. And for those of you who don't know, there's this... uh, Tarasoff, T-A-R-S-O-F-F case in 1976 or something in California. Tarasoff is the gal's name who uh, her family sued uh, this uh, clinician, I think it was a psychiatrist, on on her behalf because she was killed by uh, a guy who ideated that he was going to kill her and the psychiatrist didn't do anything because he didn't want to break confidentiality and sure enough he killed her and then they were like, hey, you're to blame. So now we have these duty to warn laws. Nevada didn't adopt its until 2015 because we're Nevada and we're dead last and everything that matters. But that point aside, it's on the books. And it says, if you have knowledge of imminent threat of harm to self or others and it's identifiable uh, and you can, you know who the person is and whatnot and you can report, you have to report. So 
There's very precise criteria for this. It's pretty it's fairly high bar to meet. You can't just go willy-nilly tattling on people and breaking confidentiality because you are scared that they may do something one day. It's got to be precise and you know identifiable and articulated and whatnot and executable. So, so we got that on the books. So now we we get let's say we get assisted suicide on the books, and it's like anybody at any time can say, "I want to take my own life, but I'm going to do it medically." <laughs> All right, reconcile that now with the Tarasov law. That's the first order of business the legislatures have to do, is they have to make sense of those two seemingly oppositional laws. Uh, then we have our ethical code, and that's a, a different, like, sticky wicket. Um, did a video probably a year ago on, um, I think I, I called it, like, seeing conflict through an ethical lens, and I talked about the five ethical precepts of autonomy, justice, fidelity, non-maleficence, and beneficence. You can read more about this elsewhere, but... Um, Autonomy is what we're talking about here, right? We're, we're respecting the person's ability to choose for self. But then we have to counterbalance that with beneficence. What is the helpful thing to do? Uh, keep them alive? Well, through whose lens? You know, if they're really truly suffering and miserable, who am I to say that they're not and that this isn't a, you know appropriate path? And then there's the justice. Do we act on someone's behalf when they're not capable? <laughs> if you're mentally ill to the point that you want to take your own life and you can't see any other path except that, well, do I have an ethical duty on behalf of justice acting on somebody else's behalf to step in and say, well, maybe this isn't a good idea because you have lots of life to live. The, the guy in that thing was, I think he was like 26 years old or 27 years old. So it's like, that's a lot of life to live if we're sticking with statistical averages. Um, and there's lots more to contribute to society, irrespective of how much pain you're in or whether your limbs work or whatever. We can point to a zillion other people who have overcome things, right? Okay. And then we have fidelity. Fidelity means faithfulness to the profession, to the ethics, to the contract we signed with the individual. So if we presume this is our patient sitting in front of us saying, I'm going to go down to the local death doctor and get a needle in my arm and I'll slowly pass away because life is miserable or whatever. I go, whoa, hold on. When you and I entered into this contract, we agreed that we would abide by certain principles, one of which is I'm going to step in when you're going to do something drastic as embedded in law. Uh, so I have that to consider. And then non-maleficence, which is do no harm, right? There's still that hanging out there. And so now we get to define harm and we could have a four-hour philosophical conversation about what constitutes harm. But the point is we have overwhelmingly in this profession heretofore pitched ourselves on Keep people alive, make people happy, right? What, what the hell is self-death now? Like, And not to mention all the money and time and resources that suicide prevention programs have been doing over the last many, many years. Like, do we just like chuck that out the window and pretend it didn't matter? Uh, I don't know how that's going to get squared either. But what I can tell you is with a high degree of certainty, it is coming. It is coming and here's why. Affirming care. Affirming care is very popular right now, and it says things like, don't argue with your patient, they know what's best. Well, then why are they in my office? If they know what's best, why are they here? Well, they just want you to affirm so they can get the medical letter for surgery or whatever. And that trickle-down is going into our children, the non-age of majority, right? So how long until children can have their own suicides signed off by their parents? At, at like what? At what point does this actually become medically assisted homicide, where we've got some I don't know, what do they call that uh, factitious disorder imposed upon another? I think it's F sixty two dot ten or something, otherwise known as Munchausen's by proxy. Like, 
look at my sick kid, my sick kid, my kid's so sick. Look how sick he is. Look how sick he is. Like, oh, look at me. Look at me. Really, it's it's histrionic narcissism. But it's like, my sick kid is so sick, he'll never live a good life. Let's terminate him. Like, how how close are we to that? I don't think that's an unreasonable conclusion to draw if we don't stop it right damn now. Um, and we have to pitch it on the existing ethics. Unless we want to go back and revisit the entire ethical code and its underpinnings. Like, I don't, I don't see how this could even be in existence in Canada, a supposedly developed country. You know, I don't know, maybe it's third world and we're just not aware of it. But like what, and to your point about life, and I'd like to hear you talk more about this. What's up with the value of life? I have my own opinions, but you know, you're the guest and I want to hear from you and so do the, the other you know listeners. What do you mean when you say we've lost the ability to value life or however you phrased it? Well, I meant that like I can think of several different things. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> where exactly you're okay with me going with this, but I nothing I is off limits a in of, a mental health show. Okay, <laughs> I think that that we have, we have, or at least I'm seeing like there is a diminishing of the value of life and the hope for life too. Um, I mean, I happen to agree by the way, if that's, um, if that's useful, I agree. I just um, want to know why yeah, you yeah. concluded this or how, because I, I think it's hard for me to talk about this topic and not think of life. And then not also, I guess, within my own values, if not think of something beyond this too, like, you know, mm -hmm. um, a higher power and, and life is good. Like that is something that I teach my children. That is something that I, I definitely um, believe that life, now not everything in life that we experience feels good, but life itself, I think is a gift. And I think that we have now um, started to view it as like an option <laughs> and, and, it, and it's not, it's no longer like so much a gift, but it's just an option. And, um, and I, I think it's also, it can be to me, I think it's kind of, um, What's the word? It's kind of, I don't know. Um, I think it's silly how we can sometimes think that we know so much about the life ahead of us too, hmm. when we just don't. Yeah. We we don't. Like you said, there's so much life ahead of a 26-year-old. There also could be so much meaningful moments in life ahead of a 50 or 60-year-old. Um, and, you know, like like you said, like, how did we get to this? Um and I, and I think what also something that you said that, that I think is important is this whole focus on autonomy um, and the self. We've, we're definitely a culture about the self, the autonomy, and that, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if you take a look at how that's affected relationships, um, even ourselves, you know, our relationship with self, it's not done any really real good. Yes, it's important to take care of yourself. Um, but when we, when we start to focus only on ourselves, I think that like we can literally lose our minds doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, and we lose our relationships and we come like become so self-absorbed that we're not seeing past our own emotion, our own pain, our own everything that that just becomes, um, just so compounded, like in our, in our minds that it's the only thing that we see and we forget about the others around us. What's well, like, narcissistic? Yes, very. And and I think that's like 
look at where it's brought us. <laughs> like, like, look at where, like you said, it has brought us. It's brought us to. Self-death. I like how you said that. Self-death. <laughs> yeah. If, uh, I mean, divorces are still high. People are getting married mm-hmm. at a lower rate. So divorce is actually dropping because the divorce rate, I mean, it's, it's really hard to measure it. Um, and there's a zillion different metrics, but on the whole divorces, divorce rate is dropping and it's likely because people aren't getting married, which sounds mm-hmm. to me like a hellscape. Um, because if you know anything about emotional functioning, the way that I teach it, the reason emotions are so important is because we are meant to exist in tribes and the way that we exist in tribes is through emotional connectivity and shared resources and reliance upon one another. So the fact that we're living more isolatively is uh, alarming. And I think that's part of that narcissistic self-aggrandizement that we're seeing. It's like, yeah, you, you do you, right? Uh, there's this one lady who's I, I, I'm not going to mention her name because I can't remember it, but I don't want to get it wrong. But she writes a ton of articles, has been doing it for a few years now, about how glorified she thinks she should be for these seemingly great decisions to put herself first. And she like divorced her husband and left her kids behind. And it's like, I'm living my best life without this like baggage or whatever. It's like, wow, okay, cool. You treat your most important relationships like insects. Awesome. I guess. I don't know. And we're supposed to praise you and you get like cover articles on Forbes or like, what the hell? Like our culture is <laughs> celebrating this. And to me, it's, it's all part of this disposable, uh, nature of modernity where it's like, don't wash the thing and reuse it. Just throw it away. Don't fix it when it breaks. Just buy a new one. Uh, and oh, by the way, everything's getting cheaper because China's just cranking out stuff and we can buy it on Amazon and it gets here tomorrow, right? Instant gratification, disposable. Now, like our relationships become disposable. And now, oh my gosh, ourselves are being disposable. Mm-hmm. Like I don't matter anymore so I can just off myself. And like, wow, man, like nothing is precious anymore. Uh, not even mm-hmm. you. That's crazy to me. And yes, I do think there's an absence of faith uh in a higher power, I think the absence of God in our lives has absolutely bred this. Um, because without something more significant to pursue, then the here and now is all there is. And if the here and now sucks, I might as well quit. You know, that's, that's basically what we're seeing. We're seeing it in industry too. You know, it's like, I don't like my job. Screw you. Quit on the, on the, on the day that you decide to quit. Right. And don't even give two weeks notice. Like we don't even have basic manners anymore. Um, so yeah, this, this like, narcissistic um disposable mentality of you know instant gratification or i'll just take my ball and leave is is really alarming which is distressing because when it when it comes through professional realms and are spoken through our professional ethics or now as published by the american association of married family therapy you know guidelines and i'll put that in air quotes for the listening audience guidelines on affirming care um, they call it LGBTQIA plus affirming care, but really it's like, there's no stoppage to that. It doesn't stop with one demographic. It's don't argue with your patient. Your patient is right. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. so I'm just supposed to agree with your self-diagnosis from TikTok. And then you're going to disagree with my intervention on how to cure it. Like what, what, what? <laughs> it's my identity. Mm-hmm. I am ADHD. It's like, so yeah, yeah, when it comes through our medical associations or professional associations, which then have outsized influence into our laws, that's where we end up. I just don't know why. I mean, are we really that despondent? 
Or is there some angle I'm missing here where people are like making money off of a grift? Like right. I, I can't figure it out. Oh yeah. I've, I've kind of like pondered that too. And, um, of like who, who is benefiting from this? Like literally people are choosing to die and who, who is benefiting from this? Because I always think that like, okay, there might be somebody. And is it, is it, I don't know. Um, government like i don't know yeah. like who well, is well, like in canada like, canada government insurance will pay for the cost so it's like mm-hmm. so who benefits from that i mean the doctor right. gets a few extra bucks in his pocket like as if they don't have enough pain to deal with well, like yeah. like you don't need the volume like i don't know and i i get that you can do mental acrobatics to arrive at the decision to take somebody's life because hashtag autonomy but like all right <laughs> let's set that aside where where's the big driver behind this narcissistic yeah. compassion you know where it's like I'm going to act on your behalf because I'm the, you know, great pontificator with my credentialism and I sit on all these committees and boards and I have influence on laws and, and I'm acting on behalf of the sick and ailing to alleviate their suffering. Look at me, look how great I am that I alleviated all the sick and ailing suffering by killing them. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just this raging sociopathy. I, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely <laughs> yeah, it's mind boggling and and like yeah, I think like at the end of the day too, something that you said earlier is just like um, okay, like the the push for like affirming care, and I keep going back to what are we affirming though? Like in Illness. this case, <laughs> what, what, yeah, what are we affirming? And, it, and it's just like, and we're 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 reaffirming like this. I think it's like kind of delusional thinking, honestly. And I, I, that's yeah. the part where I'm like, I can't, I can't affirm delusional thinking, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah. Well, and how long before you know the APA strips uh, delusion from <laughs> from the, the DSM, right? <laughs> I feel like it already has, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not even talking. We're not even allowed to talk about fictitious disorder. We're not even allowed to talk about illness, anxiety disorder. Not definitely not in the age of COVID, right? Like, hey, you have an irrational fear of sickness. That's why you're nervous and shaking all the time. And you just got done mm-hmm. telling me that you, you know, can't take the mask off your face because you are afraid of breathing in COVID. It's like. Yeah, we're all going to get COVID. COVID's here to stay. Like what? So, so you're afraid of getting COVID. That's illness, anxiety disorder. That's a manifestation of mental irrationality. I can't talk about that anymore because it's it's impolite. I mean, hell, we I like it's it's even hard to talk about personality disorders because it's like, well, that's really intense. Like, yeah, it is. What else are we going to take off the table? Cancer because people might get offended. Right. Don't tell right. them they have cancer. Tell them they have stomach pains and give them some you know, digestive pills. Like what? Well, I'm, no, he's going to die. Like <laughs> he's got cancer yeah. in the stomach. Like you want me to lie to the guy? That's unethical too. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so much like around to like um, your truth and my truth. And I think that's, yeah. that's the part that's like really, really difficult. And I think like as a therapist, okay, everything that I, I don't know, everything that I am passionate about, I also love, and I feel like it's contradicting love if I were, you know, to, to go ahead and and push something that I know is like a lie, like, you know, and, and that's where I feel like I think as a, as a profession, as a parent, as, you know, um, just a person in this world, if we don't like grow backbone (laughs) to some of these things, um, and stand up for it, like it's a slippery slope and it's a scary one. 
Yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm not excited about where this is going to go, but I am excited about the people who, you know, through connections like this will go, oh, okay, it is all right to speak up and I can en- endure the wrath of the people who are crazy enough to advocate for things like self-death or permanent identity issues when the identity is clearly not helping the individual, you know, like what, what? Yeah. Um, and so we can go, no, that's not right. And here's why it's not right inauthenticity is not good. Um, questioning reality is not good. Um, mm-hmm. you know, postmodernism needs to just take a hike altogether. Uh, postmodernism as a, as a thought exercise is cool for getting people out of binary thinking. Postmodernism taken to a policy level erodes everything that we previously had trust in. So I'm not interested in questioning just for the sake of questioning. That's not good, but that's where we are. It's like, well, your, mm-hmm. your truth and my truth, and you don't get to argue my truth because because I get to fabricate my own truth. It's like, well, you have your own perceptions, sure, but you don't get to debate me on the sky is blue. Well, no, you're bigoted if you argue. Like, what? Okay, all right, all right, fine. And, like, where have we seen that truly? Truly, where have we seen that been helpful? I think it's I've seen it, even the population that I work with, and these ideas of, um, you know, just like you said, you can call anything anything and it, it should be okay it should be affirmed is um brings more chaos and anxiety sure. I've, I've seen it like i think it's more confusion and it brings more chaos and um more division mm-hmm. more division than anything right because if nothing is real and everything's a construct of a construct and i can make up whatever i want what that leaves me with is no reference point right mm-hmm. and so then you end up walking through this like house of mirrors and you're bouncing off of other people's projections and ideations and so forth. You don't know who you are at your core. And I think that every time I've seen this, and I'm, uh, I'm pretty confident in this, I do, I'm pretty confident that it's every time I've seen this, it's because someone fails to have a secure attachment, if not multiple secure attachments, right? So what it does is it acts as a control proxy. It's a stand-in for authentic sense of self, authentic sense of connectivity. Because if you can just manufacture whatever your own reality is and live, quote unquote, your truth, and by the way, nobody gets to question your truth because they're not you, fine. What you're essentially doing is you're creating a control environment that is uniquely your own, totally insular and isolated, and entirely up to you. So yes, there's shades of narcissism in there, but there's also shades of massive, massive, massive insecurity and fear because you don't know how to connect in a healthy way with other individuals. So you want to repair this. Well, let's go back to the kickoff of the conversation, which is interpersonal connectivity, couples counseling, family dynamics, strong family values, and then your kid doesn't have to go down the rabbit hole of identity exploration that has nothing to do with reality. Um, if you, if you anchor yourself well into a family unit, there's no need to seek proxy relationships made totally out of artifice. Mm -hmm. You don't have to invent things that don't exist. And, and it startles me that we have an entire profession now, ours from the AAMFT that actually is taking a stand to say, you're not allowed to argue that. I mean, it's, it's beyond crazy to me. We would never do that with any other diagnosis. Self-harm. You mentioned self-harm earlier. Would we just affirm that? It's like, well, 
I am a self-harmer. That's what I do. I just cut on myself. Don't argue with right. me. It's my identity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It helps me. Yeah. And yeah. This is who I am. And if you don't understand that, you're not me. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we do need to push back and I think we need to push back responsibly and in articulate ways, um, against these, uh, the, this fragmenting and this erosion of the pillars that, you know, used to anchor us. Um, mm -hmm. and if that doesn't work, well, maybe we're headed for, you know, uh, a, a re regeneration of what the field looks like and, you know, the market will ultimately decide, I think, who they want to get their treatment from, but. Yeah. So, uh... and for I think for like for listeners, it's just like I think, and for myself too, and probably you, but um, I think it's just a reminder of how important like our work is at home. Yes. That's, that's yes. Right in your own home. <laughs> control what you can control. It's uh, shades of Stephen Covey. It's like sphere of concern and sphere of influence. Um, you know, like influence what you can. Which start start small, very small your home, mm -hmm. your work environment. And then, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, it's like, you can, you're not going to change the world if you can't make your bed, <laughs> make your bed first. <laughs> I love that. Right. <laughs> then, then worry about climate change. <laughs> like, <laughs> make, you can't even make your bed, make your bed. Yeah. Um, so thanks for taking the time. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, really appreciate you. you. I really appreciate the work you do. And, um, tell people how they can reach you. You're in Stockton. Is that right? I am. I'm in Stockton, California. Might be making a move to your state come next year. We will possibly. welcome you. We will yeah. welcome you with open arms. <laughs> I can virtually guarantee that. May even have a spot in an agency for you. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and and I'm mostly like as far as like reaching me, um, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So Christina underscore DLA. Um, building together podcast on wherever you listen to your podcast, SoundCloud or Apple. Um, so yeah, those are the two main places you can find me. Christina underscore underscore DLA and um, building together podcast. So, well, thanks much appreciated on behalf of our Naga Notes family on behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family. Thank you all for listening. Give us a rating and review. Do all the things, you know, share it with your friends. And um, we wish you all mental, good mental wellness. Bye-bye.